If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 32. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 32. We'll make reference in a few minutes in the opening section of our message, as we often do, that what... Uh, Mark is talking about here is what we have uh, printed in our bulletin every Sunday, namely that we are becoming disciples. We are becoming disciples. Uh, The next thing in the bulletin is that we are, we're living as a family of disciples. And uh, uh, not that many weeks ago, but a number of weeks ago, um, I, I announced that Paul Eidsness had undergone an emergency surgery on our early hours of a Saturday morning. Um, I did not know at the time that that particular surgery that Paul was the first one uh, I've been told since to ever have that surgery done at the heart hospital in Sioux Falls. Now, that may sound like a distinction, but you rarely do want to be first um, um, in, in such a thing like that. You, you, you want the doctor to say to you what my doctor said to me when they were uh, wheeling me in for angioplasty. You want to hear him say, this. We do this every day, and only one in a thousand of these goes wrong. See, that's what you want to hear. That's what you want to hear. You never want to hear, we've never done this before. Um, But uh, the great thing is Paul and Darlene are back with us uh, this morning, so we're just praising the Lord uh, for that within our family of disciples, what, uh, what a great uh, Sunday this is uh, to have uh, Paul and Darlene back in our midst on the other side of that uh, harrowing experience and that very, very, very serious surgery. Uh, let's stand together. Uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 32. Mark 9, 30 to 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And they didn't understand the saying. And were afraid to ask him about it. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do ascribe to you as your children. We ascribe to you glory and strength, for you are glorious. And you are strong. The heavens declare your glory. All of your plan of salvation exists to the praise 
of the glory of your grace, according to the Apostle Paul. And so, Lord, what a privilege to gather and ascribe to you glory and strength. Ascribe to you the glory of your name to worship before you in the splendor of your holiness. Lord, we sang this morning, holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty. A way of saying there's no one else remotely like you. Your holiness, your uniqueness, no one is strong, no one is knowledgeable, no one is wise, no one as reliable. And we have words from you, words from the holy, powerful God. We have the voice that comes from you, that travels over the seas. We have a glory that comes from you, that causes and comes to us in the form of thunderous might and majesty. Your voice is a strong voice. Your voice comes in splendor and truth and wonder. It can do anything that you send it to do. When you say, let there be light, there is light. When you say, let there be sun, moon, and stars, there are sun, moon, and stars. Uh, Your voice, the psalmist says, breaks the cedars. The Lord, Yahweh, breaks the cedars of Lebanon when he speaks and causes the world to do whatever you wish the world to do, for you are a sovereign Lord over all. So, Father, we do thank you for the privilege of having words from you but also for the privilege of being able to call out to you in prayer and the privilege to be able to mark the, a Sunday like this, to have Paul Eidsness back in our midst after a, a very, very serious surgery and a relatively arduous, long recovery. And we just praise you and thank you uh, for that. And we think of others in our congregation who are in the midst of troubles and trials. Lord, we mentioned again... Uh, Susan Elgersma coming back from a back surgery and also struggling with uh, one of her knees. And in the midst of all of this, it can be discouraging and seem slow. And uh, we just lift up Susan to you as well. And many others, Lord, who are struggling with chronic illnesses, and trouble, and find life to be at times quite difficult. Uh, Lord, we praise you that you are strong and that you give to your people the strength that they need. 
Lord, we pray that you would bless us this day with your hope and with your peace through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our only hope and the only ground of peace. In Jesus' name, we ask for it. Amen. Be seated. Mentioned many, many times, the um, one of the commentators made the comment on the Gospel of Mark in his commentary that there's constantly Mark is just answering one of two questions and sometimes uh, both questions together. But the more fundamental question is. Uh, who is Jesus, or just how important is Jesus, or just how significant is Jesus? And, and Mark 9 opened with that question first and foremost, because that's what the incident on the Mount of Transfiguration is all about. It's this image of Jesus, right, when he becomes dazzling White. The symbolism involved was a way of saying, Jesus is the Ancient of Days from Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is the Lord Yahweh Himself. That's who Jesus is. And Mark's Gospel sets as. Uh, one of its central goals to to, cheat, to teach us just uh, that. Now, the second big question is, and so, given who Jesus is, what does he expect from those who follow him? What does he expect from his disciples? And this is where, as I already mentioned, we have week by week in our bulletin, we are becoming Disciples, that's what he expects. He expects followers of his to embody his words in worship and witness and wisdom for the sake of the world, but he expects followers of his to become disciples by means of submitting themselves to his teaching. Now both of these both of these questions and their answers show up in something as fundamental as what we refer to as the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, right? So here it is, Matthew twenty-eight sixteen and following. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, and here's the answer to the first question, so who is Jesus? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So who's Jesus? He's the one who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. And then gives, we as his followers, this command, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How do you do that? Well, twofold description. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then secondly, 
teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So there they are, the two questions. So who is Jesus? Well, he's the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. And what does he want from us? He wants us to learn his words so as to place them into practice. That's what he wants. Teaching them to observe. Teaching them to observe. We mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, we're on the um, uh, Ten Commandments on Sunday night right now in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and Pastor Don passed over a passage where, uh, where Moses talks about uh, learning so as to keep, so as to do. Well, that's, that's the background, right? That's the Old Testament background to this kind of language that Jesus uses here. You learn so as to keep, so as to do, and here you observe so as to keep, so as to do, so as to observe all that I have commanded you. And that is the essence of discipleship, and that's the main focus on these three verses here in Mark 9. Uh, I state our thesis for this morning this way. We need to get alone with Jesus that we may learn. And learn some hard things, as we'll find out at the end of the passage. But we need to get alone with Jesus in order that, or that we may learn and learn some hard things. We'll look at this under three headings. Number one, we need to learn the teaching of Jesus. Um, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and they did not want anyone, he didn't want anyone to know. Well, why didn't he want anybody to know? Because he was teaching his disciples. He wanted to focus on the teaching of his disciples. You ever thought much about who your teacher is if you have Jesus as a teacher? There's a a number of ways that you can talk about it, but uh, I was uh, brought to mind a couple of the more famous ways, especially when you think about a person as a teacher, as to how Jesus is described by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Colossians. First uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, he describes Jesus in this way, in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's a pretty good teacher to have. If you can be taught by the one in whom all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden, then you've had a pretty excellent teacher. Uh, Six verses later, he comes back and 
describes Jesus this way, the Apostle Paul again. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Christ, the whole fullness of deity, the whole infinite excellence that is God, is embodied in the person of Jesus and therefore also embodied in the teaching of Jesus. What a teacher to have. The one in whom the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are all hidden. The one in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And he didn't want anybody to know that he was in the region. Why? For he was teaching his disciples because he wanted to concentrate on teaching his disciples. Schools all across Sioux Falls are, are, are named after various kinds of people, right? We have schools named after presidents. We have schools named after Supreme Court justices, Uh, We have schools named after artists. We have schools uh, named after lots of different professions. But, you know, one of of the the interesting ones, right, is we have a teacher uh, named after a teacher, uh, which which doesn't happen terribly often, right? But that's the case with Ann Sullivan. Uh, Ann Sullivan. Um, uh, The first famous teacher I probably ever had pointed out to me by one of my uh, favorite teachers, uh, Mrs. Peterson. Um, You know, she was the one that got me for my second run of the second grade, which was a distinction of hers. Uh, In 1965, uh, Mrs. Peterson was, was already 65 Years old, which which means that she had been born in 1893. Well, Ann Sullivan's famous student Helen Keller was only born 13 years earlier than that. She had been born in in 1880, and as I think was a pretty standard. Uh, those of you who are my age or older can tell me whether you remember this or not. But I, I do remember. Mrs. Peterson reading to us uh, the opening chapters of Helen Keller's autobiography, which which Keller wrote when she was just 23 years old in uh, in 1903. Um, And and in it, uh, it's really the early chapters especially, are simply a tribute to her teacher, Ann Sullivan, who comes to this deaf and blind girl and and teaches her the alphabet and then how to read and then how to write and, uh, and then become the first deaf-blind woman to ever graduate from college, all, all of those things were the accomplishments of Helen Keller and all of those things are what made Anne 
Sullivan, famous as a teacher. And in that book, I, I remember her simply being remembered by Helen Keller as the teacher. The teacher showed me this. The teacher showed me that. Um, very appropriate school named after a teacher. And probably every one of us in this room would be able to name certain teachers that stand out in your mind as people who had an above-average influence on you. It's a significant profession. It's a significant uh, gifting, right, to be a teacher. Well, our text, right, this is where, you know, the, the real wonder of it comes. For as a disciple, when you open your Bible day by day, it is your privilege to be taught by Jesus. Jesus makes teaching us a priority. That's, that, that's the reason for that little statement there, right? He didn't want to be noticed in the region. That is, he didn't want to get bogged down with healing and other forms of interaction. He was interested in carrying out one central important task with his disciples at this time. And that was simply teaching them. Teaching them. He didn't want anybody to know, for he was teaching his disciples. Like Helen Keller, who referred to Sullivan over and over again simply as the teacher. This is what comes to Mary's mind in the gospel account at the resurrection. John 20, verses 11 to 16. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Mary, supposing him to be the gardener, said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, in Aramaic, Rabboni, which in Greek would simply be teacher. Teacher. Of all that she saw and experienced of Jesus, she summarized the whole thing down into that. Teacher. The kind of learner we are turns out to be 
the defining mark of spiritual survival in this world. That's how John records Jesus in John 8. Remember how Jesus puts it, John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is what was alarmingly ominous to the Billy Graham Association a couple of decades into their ministry when they started to do more extensive sociological follow-up, asking specifically this question. Of those who come forward at the crusade, how many of them, five years down the line, are in any sense still abiding in his word? And the answer was 5% which means the answer, going the other way, 95% no. Now think of the implications of that if you're the Billy Graham crusade and you take John 8.31 seriously. If you abide in my words, then you are truly my Disciples, implying, and if you don't, you're not. And then you find out 95% of our decisions don't. Don't. Um, All of that to say, It really matters if Jesus is your teacher, and it really matters what kind of a learner you are. Could you describe yourself as abiding in the word of Christ? Does it have an abiding influence on you? Does it set you free from the currents of our culture that sweep everybody else downstream? It better. It should. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They went on from there, and they passed through Galilee, and he didn't want anybody to know, for he was teaching them. And that's your involvement in reading your Bible day by day and attending Bible studies and coming to a service like this and going to a Sunday school class, um, that ongoing connection uh, 
with the Word of God is absolutely, absolutely crucial. The Great Commission, teaching them to observe, to keep so as to do all that I have commanded you. Secondly, we need to learn about the importance of the death of Jesus. So central to what Jesus teaches us is the importance of his death and how that works its way out in the plans and purposes of God. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he's killed after three days, he will rise. Now, hopefully, many of you have learned this by now, so you, you weren't you know, shocked when John reads the passage for this morning. And, and you think, what a strange passage to pick out of the Old Testament, to read you know, 2 Samuel 24, 14. How in the world does the pastor come up with this kind of obscurantism? Well, it's not in the middle of the night. Um, I, I, I do this often, as I did it in this case, by simply looking at the margin of my Bible. And there, in the margin of the Greek New Testament, set off to the side... Of verse 31 is 2 Samuel 24, 14. Now, why would that be there? Well, because at the very end of David's life and career as king, he makes a major mistake. And against the advice of his wiser counselors, he insists on numbering his armies so that he can know whether or not Israel's safe. Because you wouldn't want to be trusting God or something like that. You would much rather be staring at some hard data uh, that would be a lot more comforting than simply reminding yourself of the promises and the presence of God. And so that's what David did. Uh, Given the lack of comfort that he was able to draw from the promises and the presence of God, he, he numbers the people. And as is often the case with us, as soon as he finishes doing that, he knows it was wrong. As soon as we do it, then we know, oh, yeah, that was really dumb. That was really wrong. Um, Great picture of what conscience is, is recorded in 2 Samuel 24, 10. Because here's how uh, the author of 2 Samuel put it. David's heart struck him. After he had numbered the people. That's how conscience works. Your heart speaks to you. We should have never done that. That was wrong. That's how it works. That's what happens to David. His heart struck him. 
He said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. And now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant. For I have done very foolishly. And when David rose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, said to him, Shall, number one, three years of famine come? Two, shall you flee for three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or three, shall there be three days of pestilence in the land? Interestingly enough, it's the middle one. The the fleeing for three periods of time before your enemies that gets David's attention. And here's how he responds. I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord For his mercy is great. That is, one and three are both the hand of the Lord. But the middle one involves other sinful human beings. But let me not fall into the hand of man. In other words, David's David's response is, falling into the hands of evil men, anything but that. Anything but that. So so what does that got to do with anything? Well, this. David's greater offspring, the Son of Man. This is precisely the path that God has called him to walk in our place. And hence, this is why That text is in the margin because of this language in verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered over into the hands of man. The very thing David said, anything but that, not that. The Son of Man is going to be called into experiencing precisely that humiliated by enemies, mocked by enemies, murdered by enemies. That's the plan of God for his own son. Don't let me be delivered over to the hands of men, David says. Jesus says, but I am going to be delivered over into the hands of men. Same verb that Paul will later use in his famous description, his famous summary of the ground of our salvation from Romans 8.32. He did not spare his own son, but he gave him up. 
he delivered him over. For us all, how will he not also freely with him give us all things? And now to the death, the Son of Man will be delivered over into the hands of men, and they'll kill him. And they'll kill him. And when he's killed, he'll be raised from the dead. And when he's killed, he'll be raised from the dead. So the death and also the resurrection of Christ were taught about here and the significance of it. And when he is killed, after three days... He'll be raised from the dead. We use this text every time we do adult baptism. We always do a brief exposition on Romans 6, 1 to 4. Romans 6, 1 to 4. Um, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into his Christ, into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. There's the first thing. Death of Christ. Fast forward to the end of of Romans chapter 6 and what do you find? The wages of sin is death. And the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. We're baptized into his death. We're, we're, We're baptized into his substitution for our death in our place. So crucial the death of Jesus is. But he doesn't stop with that. He goes on. We're buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. But then phase two. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may walk in newness of life. You meet that right at the beginning of the Bible, right? What happens if you pay no attention to the word of God in the Garden of Eden? You will surely die. That's the background of Paul's statement at the end of Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. You will surely die. Had to be a death. That's the gospel. Christ's death is the substitute for the death of sinners. Why shouldn't you be afraid of death if you're a Christian? Because the death due you has already been died by somebody else. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. you got nothing to worry about. Why? Because you're so wonderful? No, no, you deserve death in hell. But somebody has already absorbed that in your place. That's the death of Jesus. That's the gospel. If you're trusting anything else, you're trusting the wrong thing. And you'll die in your sins. Except you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you'll die in your sins. It's the only alternative. Is to trust Christ. And then his death becomes yours. But more than that, his resurrection life becomes the empowerment of of our life. Um, That is, he raised up Christ from the dead, the glory of the Father, that we might walk in newness of life. They will kill him, 
And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise, and and we will have this resurrection life. And, And the assurance of our forgiveness is found in the evidence of our resurrection life. We, we quote this in the prayer every time we come to the Lord's Supper. 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. To use Paul's kind of language, if we walk in the light, it's because we're living by the resurrected power of the Spirit through Christ and thereby we have fellowship one another, and thereby we know that the blood of Jesus, his Son, has cleansed us from all sin. Is that you? See, that's the question. Is that you? If so, what a glorious thing. Thirdly, we need to learn things that we would rather not know. Um, and that's what's going on here. They don't want to hear about the death of Jesus. And thereby, they, they don't even hear the thing about the resurrection either. So verse 32, here's how uh, Mark puts it. But they didn't understand the saying. They didn't know what Jesus was talking about. And they were afraid to ask. They were afraid to ask. We are like this, right? Um, so once, once you worry that you might have cancer symptoms, the last thing you want to do is go see the doctor. Because you don't want to know. You don't want to know. I want to believe that it's something less than that. And I don't want to know what testing would show. And so I'm just going to pretend like I haven't really noticed Anything at all. That's what we're like. That's how we're wired. That's how most of us go. Now, some of you are exceptions to that, but you are exceptions. Most of us are like that. Are like that. If I don't know, it can't hurt me. Um, uh, Which, unfortunately, in almost no area of life is true. Uh, But... But it's one of our, 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 favorite, our favorite things. Well, Peter uh, is among the big three, right, who are on the mountain with Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration. And, uh, and John is up there as well. And John records for us the kind of information that we wish Jesus would not give to us. And he records it at the close of John 21. Uh, This is that section, right, where the resurrected Jesus shows up on the shore. Uh, Peter and the disciples are out in the boat, cast a net on the other side. They get a huge catch of fish. They pull the fish to shore. And then Jesus is serving them a shore lunch. Uh, Like the guides do for you if you go... You know, fishing in Canada, you know, they fix the fish for you and everything, and you just got to show up and, 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 and eat it. Well, that's what Jesus has, has just done for them. So he's fixed this fish. Uh, now they're sitting down, and they get to eat by the fire uh, Jesus' shore lunch. And in the midst of that shore lunch, he has this famous, uncomfortable exchange 
with Peter. Beginning in verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Emphasis on teaching again three times in a row from our theme. But then this, truly I say to you, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. Well, everybody agrees the three affirmations of Peter's love are almost certainly connected with the three denials on the night of Jesus' arrest. And what Peter was trying to avoid on the night of his denials is precisely this. That they would arrest him and kill him. And Jesus says to him, well, you just delayed it a bit. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, carefree life. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. And this he said to show him what kind of death he was about to glorify God, namely crucifixion. And after saying this to him, I'll just pause before we finish. So what's Peter supposed to do with that? Why tell me that? Why not let it come as a surprise later? I don't want to know that kind of thing in advance. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't want to know you know, that I have like an 83% of all, chance of Alzheimer's when I'm 30. I don't want to know that. Um, I don't want to know stuff like that. Why would you tell me that? That's the point. Jesus tells us lots of things. We would rather not know. We would rather not know. Because the Gospels tell us elsewhere, right? Matthew 16. Here we are, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, in America, one of the easiest places to be a Christian anywhere in the world, still. But we're warned, Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. So if you actually follow me, People are not going to appreciate it. 
It's not going to help you. Increasingly, it's not going to help your career. It's not going to help you get into the best schools. It's not going to help you. It is just not going to help you. But it's how it ought to be. It's how you need to think. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. He goes through all of that peace, and it ends with exactly the same words, right? So what's Peter supposed to do with this? Just follow me. Just follow me. See, Whatever's going on in your life right now as a disciple, so here you are, you're trying to live a life for Christ, and... And in a room like this, there's various levels of difficulty all across the spectrum. Some of you are in relatively easy times, positive times. Others of you are in difficult times, challenging times, frightening times. What are you supposed to do with all of that? Same thing in either case. But you follow me. You simply follow me. You simply take what you have learned from Jesus. Trust it, embody it, practice it. That's it. That's the path of hope in the world. That's the only path of hope in all the world. But you follow me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be followers of yours. To have you as our teacher, in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom the deity dwells bodily, you, our teacher. Oh Lord, may we be disciples of yours. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.